Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's amazing to uh, be in this setting, the worship. I love that wonderful song. This is Jesus in his glory, King of heaven dying for me. There's not many songs as wonderful as that to focus on Jesus and what he's done for us. And it's great to be in a people, with the people who want to magnify Jesus together. And so it's a thrill to be here. Thanks for the lovely welcome you've given to Wendy and to me. We've so enjoyed being with you. We're looking forward to tomorrow as well. We're here right through, and uh, it's just great to meet with so many uh, friends from the past, friends, new friends, and so on. Thank you. It's a great, great joy. Once again, we're looking into the book of Acts. We're going to start in Acts. We'll go beyond Acts, but we're looking in Acts and chapter 4 once again. Acts and chapter 4, going to read a few verses with you from verse 32. Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. They would be distributed to each as any had need. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our joy in Jesus. Thank you for opening our blind eyes. Thank you for helping us to understand the glorious gospel, for quickening our hearts. And Father, thank you for your desire to fellowship with us this evening. Holy Spirit, we just welcome you right now. Come, Holy Spirit, rest upon us. Lord, we invite you to be our teacher. We invite you to take these scriptures and make them live to us, to do us good. We thank you they're living and powerful. Come, mighty Spirit, fulfill your purpose in us, we pray. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I love these early chapters in Acts where you get the description of this phenomenal company of people who were suddenly aware that this Jesus whom they'd followed, some of them for three years, had seen him completely dishonored, hanging on a cross, naked, suffering, no answer from heaven, apparently everything lost. And then a few days later, this wonderful news, he's alive again. And they couldn't believe for joy that this fountain of wisdom and love and compassion and power and everything you ever wanted in anybody, he's alive again, he's alive again. And as the story went around, he's alive. It, they couldn't believe for joy. This is such good, good news. And then having been with him and he demonstrating that he's alive, he ascends to the throne, the right hand and the majesty of God and pours out the Holy Spirit. And here's this community flooded, flooded with the Holy Spirit. And it says great grace was on them all. Great grace. This sudden breakthrough of new covenant life, this new arrangement, no longer under law, now under grace. No longer just trying to work it, but now the wind of God blowing through the community. Incredible, phenomenal things happening. And, you know, in the Old Testament, 
God was always expressing His mercy and kindness to the poor. It was written into their laws that every seven years they should let people go from their debts, slaves should be freed. God was always trying to build in through His laws and rules that mercy should be shown to the poor. There shouldn't be any poor among them. If they kept these laws that God had given them back in Deuteronomy 15 and so on, the people would have been wonderfully freed again and again. There would have been corporate well-being that God wanted on His special people. It never happened because they couldn't keep the law, they couldn't uphold it. But now, Jesus, having fulfilled the law, pours out the Spirit, and suddenly it's all beginning to happen quite spontaneously. Great grace was on them all, and no one regarded the things they possessed as their own. They were sharing their possessions. No one was in need. It was a phenomenal display of love and kindness and mercy and generosity. Now, there's some things about early Acts there in chapter 4 that are unique to that occasion, and there are some things there that, hey, you'll find elsewhere in the New Testament. And the emphasis of grace is what you'll find running through. That grace sets us free to give. This is our giving evening. This is the night where we focus on this theme. And it's grace. We always need a fresh touch of grace. I find it in my own experience, coming up to a gift day, I'm always saying, Lord, give me grace again. Give me grace again. We've been here before, Lord. And here we go again. I need a fresh touch of grace. And what is grace? Grace is giving me the opportunity to see things from God's perspective. And when I don't get that wonderful perspective, I can get selfishness, nervousness, fear, caution, all sorts of things can shape my thinking. When grace comes down, it sets me free and brings me into truth. It brings me into reality. I can trust God. I can be generous. I know God will look after me. And it's grace that comes and sets us free. And you'll find that that's the theme. So later on, we'll find, I want to look tonight on how did the Apostle Paul, in later years, inspire the churches to continue giving. The spontaneous outbreak that happened in Acts 4, it happens again and again in other locations. And here's one place where Paul is writing to the church in Corinthians. Already, actually, this passage has been quoted uh, uh, as we were just in our preparation for the meeting, as Guy was introducing, this, this passage I want to turn us to in 2 Corinthians and chapter 8. And here Paul, this is his method of inspiring and motivating the Corinthians to give. This is the biblical approach. And so this is what he says in 2 Corinthians and chapter 8. I'm going to read the first few verses. Now, brothers... We wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy, their deep poverty overflowed in a wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not only as we'd expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So here we've got this outbreak of giving, this supernatural thing. And Paul, this is Paul's method. First thing he does 
is that he tells them what happened elsewhere. He's giving these Corinthians an opportunity to hear of what God did in another church. It's great to hear testimonies of what happened elsewhere. It's one of the ways the Bible inspires us, telling us the stories of other people. Now, notice this. He does not give them command. It says in the verse, uh, verse 8, I'm not speaking this as a commandment. Okay, so what's the New Testament teaching on giving? It is not a commandment. It doesn't say, you must tithe. It doesn't say, in the Old Testament, it was 10%, now it's 15%. That's the rule, get the law. It doesn't say that. It says quite plainly, it is not a command. That's not the New Testament approach. It doesn't say, this is what you must do. It's not there. Paul plainly says, it's not a command. So, that's the first thing he says. There's no command in this. So, does he leave it there? Does he say, okay, so there's no command, so we'll see what happens. No, he goes on from there, and he begins to tell them what other people have done. So he's not just leaving it and saying, well, grace will teach you. He's beginning to instruct. He's beginning to hopefully inspire. And one of the ways he does it is to tell them what another church has done. And notice this, he doesn't say, hey, they're incredible believers. These Macedonian Christians, you ought to meet them. They're amazing. He doesn't say that. He said, I want you to know about the grace of God that came upon them. Now, that's how it was in Acts 4. We just read great grace was upon them. Then they got free to give and give and give. And he said, it happened again here. Great grace was shown to these churches so that you get these extraordinary words about how they, they just gave beyond what they had. They gave out of all proportion. How did that happen? Well, grace came upon them. It's one of the reasons I found reading biographies so inspiring. When I was a young Christian, I'd been very backslidden in my early years, and then I kind of really came through to God in a wholehearted kind of way. And I used to commute to London every day on the train and a godly lady, an older lady in the church, I think saw me kind of coming alive and said, have you read this book? And she gave me a book about some of those five Ecuador, uh, well, five American missionaries who laid down their lives in Ecuador. When I read about, when I read Jim Elliott, I thought, wow, I mean, look, he's my age. Look what he's done. Look at his life. Look at his values. And, and just reading about his devotion, I found very provocative. Uh, and then I read about C.T. Studd, who was kind of the David Beckham of that generation. Great sporting hero, very rich man. And he walked away from it all and went as a missionary. Initially, he went out to China. Later, he went to India. Ultimately, he went to Africa. I read this. I thought, wow, look at these guys. Then I read Hudson Taylor. I just, you just rub shoulders with giants, and you read these people, and they show what happened in their heart, how they were motivated. And you think, Terry, you're such a slouch. Wake up. And, and, and you just get stirred by what other people have done. And Paul uses that method. So I want you to know what they've done. I want you to know what they've done. I want you to be motivated by what happened to them, this incredible thing. It says, God's grace was given to them so that God broke through and they were giving in the severe trial out of extreme poverty, overflowing joy. And so it's a very supernatural breakthrough. Grace sets us free. Grace enables us to do 
what we didn't know we could do. He does it. He looses us. He sets us free. So grace set them free. Then he says this, they first gave themselves. You know, until you give yourself, every offering is a bit of a challenge. Once you've given yourself, it's like, uh, so what do you want this time, Lord? Because you've given yourself. And Paul is saying that this is what happened with these people. They first gave themselves to the Lord. Have you done that yet? I know I'd been a Christian for probably five years before that suddenly happened for me. Before that, I'd asked Jesus into my heart. That was the gospel I'd heard. You can ask Jesus into your heart. You can know all your sins are forgiven. You can know God is your Father. You can know you're going to heaven. This is great news. So it's almost like I said to all the other idols in my life, move over, Jesus is coming in. Make room for Jesus. He came in. So I started going to church a bit, and I started reading my Bible a bit. But it wasn't like I'd given my heart, I didn't give my life to him. And I was just in church one Sunday morning, and it changed my life. A guy's preaching, and, and it was like I was the only guy in the church. And as he's preaching, he's preaching from a verse in Galatians which says, you did run well. Who's hindered you? You're no longer obeying the truth. What's happened? What's happened? Where are you drifting to? And I felt God spoke to me and said, I want your life. And I want it now. And I won't speak to you about this again. And for the first time in my life, I was really frightened of God. My prayers were always, oh, Lord, sorry about that. Get me out of this. I made a mess. It was like I was just living my life, and prayer was, Lord, get me out of this problem. Get me out of that problem. I'd never before been confronted by a God who said, I want your life, and I want it now. And because it had kind of been in the past, I felt he said, I won't speak to you about this again. It scared me. I thought, God, you may not speak to me again about wanting my life. And I went home, and I get knelt down, and to be honest, the old Terry Virgo died. A whole world passed away, a whole friendship circle, all, my, all the things I used to do, what my days and weeks were filled with, just fell away completely. Oh, it was very painful. It wasn't easy. My unsaved parents said, what's going on with you? You're losing all your friends. You're getting very religious. And it all went. Within a year, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. Within another year, I'd left my secular job, and I was on an adventure that I could never, ever have dreamed about. But I gave him my life. If you've not done that yet, why don't you do that tonight? <laughs> Say, Lord, I, I give myself to you. It says he first, they first gave themselves to the Lord. Before this offering came up, they gave themselves. Now you're in charge, Lord. You've done that yet? It's so different to the other thing of just having Jesus around. To really know he's in charge. And then it says this, and they gave themselves to us. That's a bit dangerous, isn't it? Giving yourself to a person. Isn't that like a cult? That's a bit strange. You say, oh, no, I've given myself to him, to them. It says in the Bible, they gave themselves to the Lord first, and then they gave themselves to us. It also says this, by the will of God. Okay, so this is not a cult. This is the will of God. 
Beloved, this is the will of God, that we give ourselves unreservedly to God, and then we find people that we can give ourselves to. And it doesn't say they gave themselves to New Frontiers or Commission. It says they gave themselves to us, to people, to real living people that you can know and fellowship with and enjoy. You don't give yourself to an institution. You give yourself to people. Have you done that yet? It so changes things. That's why people can't quite understand what's being done here and what has been done over these decades because we've found a life where we've given ourselves to people. I believe in the grace that's on you. I believe in the leadership that God's given you. I believe in the vision you're carrying. I'm in. I want to be part of this. And people look on and say, well, these churches are a bit different. What's it about? It's very personal. It's devotion. It's delight. It's biblical. It's what happened in the Bible. And so Paul can say, you're my brothers, my beloved, my longed for, my joy, my crown of rejoicing. It's very personal. It's very intentional. It's full of love and delight. And so he can say, they gave themselves to us. Well, Paul gave himself to them. He poured out his life for them. This is very personal. He wasn't a professional. He wasn't saying, well, this is where I am in the denomination at the moment. I may get promoted and I could get moved over there. Goodbye, that church. I'll join this church. I'm over here now. I've got my degree, I'm getting promoted through the system. No, you're my beloved, he says. You're my joy, you're my crown. It was very heart-linked, a family. That's what it was like in the Bible. And that's what it means, you know, you give yourself to people, not to an institution, not to an organization, but to people. People say, I I can trust that guy. I believe it's an integrity. I believe he's transparent. I believe what he says is true. I believe he submits himself to the Bible. I believe he's open to God. I believe the favor of God is evidently there. I am going to give myself. That's what Paul could say. This is what these people did. The grace of God came upon them. They gave themselves to God and they gave themselves to us. That sounds a bit dangerous, give yourself to people, but here it says, by the will of God. And you'll find it's back in the Old Testament. It says in 1 Chronicles 12 and verse 18 that these mighty men came to David. You read about these mighty men. They're pretty scary men. I mean, just on their day off, they jump in a tip just to kill a lion, you know, fight with a few hundred guys in the snow and all sorts of crazy things. They're scary guys. And it says they came to David and it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon one of the leaders and he said, we are yours, O David. It was the Spirit of God that did it. It wasn't just an emotional thing. It wasn't a little bit of kind of man worship. It had its origins in God. God was doing something. At the end of this story, it says David's army was like the army of God. It was like the army of God. It was a people joined together, heart to heart. They gave their hearts to one another. They were fused together in love and harmony and purpose. They could trust one another in one another's absence. They wouldn't speak against one another. They knew, he's my beloved brother, she's my sister. We're in this together. That's what happened here. That's how it happened back there in Acts 4. The Spirit came upon them of one heart and one soul. And they didn't count anything that they owned as, as their own, but held things together. You see, that, yeah, it's a bit unique 
in Acts 4, but that spirit communicates on. That sense of giving ourselves to one another, of belonging to one another, of being deeply integrated in one another's lives. Not just, oh, I go there on a Sunday. Oh, I go to that place. Sometimes I go to that place. No, God wants us giving ourselves. You're giving yourself? Where do you belong? Well, I go here and I'm looking in here as well. No, no, no. That's not the Bible way. The Bible way is we give ourselves. We give ourselves to one another. And that's what happened. They first gave themselves to the Lord and they gave themselves to one another. This is the way he's inspiring them to go. Now, this is what happened. I want you to know about the grace of God that happened in this church, amazing church. God did it. Then he goes on through these various ways of trying to inspire them. It says... They gave themselves to us, just like in Acts, they laid their money at the apostles' feet. It's like, as Andrew Wilson said here on the first day, seems ages ago, doesn't it, the first day, he said, oh, they gave it to the apostles. They trusted the apostles. They laid it at their feet. The next thing he says in verse 7, working through these ways of inspiring them, he says, just as you abound in everything, in faith, utterance, knowledge, in all earnestness, in love, see that you abound in this work also. So here's another way, another way of arguing. He says, look, you are brilliant at all, all these things. Knowledge, gifts, inspiring, all sorts of gifts. Now, I want you to be a rounded Christian. Just as you are excelling in these other things, I want you to excel in this thing of giving. It's filling out your biblical life, filling out your Christian life. That giving is a big part of what it is to be a Christian. So just as you aspire to other things, aspire to this as well. It's quite simply true in the Bible that God wants us to be seriously committed to giving away money. Would that describe you? Seriously committed to giving away money. I'm not saying the New Testament says we must tithe. I don't think it does. But it's quite clear the New Testament wants us to be seriously committed to giving away money. I want you to have this rounded Christian life, and part of it is financial generosity. If you're looking for a maturity, that's going to be there. And then the next one, he says in verse 8, testing the sincerity of your love, not as a command, but testing the sincerity because James says, faith without works is dead. I'll show you my faith by my works. I test the reality. It's very easy for us to make extraordinary claims when we're singing. You know, we, we, we tell God amazing things. And then sometimes God comes and challenges that. I remember for myself, when we were in the Brighton church, I was in for many years, and we used to have these gift days three times a year, and they're always very challenging. We, we had to raise big sums of money again and again and again. It was scary and exciting. We learned so much through it. It's God taught us. And each time we came up to another gift day, I needed to find grace. I remember once we were coming up to a gift day, and as that happened, John Major, as Prime Minister, had started a thing called a Tessa, which is a bit like the modern ISA. So you could just put money in every month for seven years, 
And when it got to the seventh year, it matured, and you didn't pay any tax on it. So it was saving without tax. It was like, whoa, this is a great thing to do. So, you know, as a responsible husband and father, I thought, yeah, we're going for this. So I remember putting in my monthly contribution into my Tessa over these years, over these years. And as it happens, the Tessa is coming to maturity. The seven-year investment is coming to maturity. And at the same time, the gift day is coming up. <laughs> and I kind of become a little bit aware of that. And thinking, yeah, the gift day is coming up and the Tessa's coming to maturity. And I remember we were in a meeting, you know, as I say, sometimes we say big things to God in our worship, don't we? And we used to sing that wonderful old Wimber song when it talks about, I will worship. And the girls sing it, I will worship, you know, it's like <laughs> better than that, okay? So, so we're going through it and we're saying, I will worship, I will worship. And then, and then it's got this, and then you sing this line, give you everything. And the girls sang, give you everything. And the Lord said to me, thank you very much, I'll have the Tessa. <laughs> oh, it was as clear as a bell. I give you everything, Lord. Thanks, I'll have the Tessa. It's like you can keep the rest for the time being, but I'll have the Tessa. Okay, so the Tessa went in. The Tessa went in. But I mean, Hundreds of people could tell stories like that. Oh, we were going to do this. We were going to go on holiday. We were going to build a conservatory. We were going to do this. And God tapped me on the shoulders and they were up on it in, please. Because there had come a time when we said, I'll give you everything. It's so easy to sing it, isn't it? I mean, especially if the melody's nice and the girls sing the other bit. I mean, it's lovely. <laughs> you think, oh, this is beautiful. I love this. To test the reality of your faith, Paul says. Do you mean it? It's quite simple. Okay, I'll have it. Oh, okay. And you had it. Because God expects that of us from time to time. When grace comes, and, and, and with that, okay, I'll have it, grace, it's a grace thing. It's like, okay, I'm free. I'm free. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I trust you for that. We can find that God gives us grace. These are the things he says, all right? These are the motivations he shares with them. He wants them to know, hey, grace was given. They gave themselves. They gave themselves to us as well. They said, we're in on this. We want this. We're part of this vision. Count me in. I want to be part of this. That's how these churches, so many of us, beloved, which have started in little house churches. Then we started hiring places. Then we needed to bring somebody out full time. Then we needed to bring somebody else out full time. Then maybe we could buy a building. How did it all happen? People have asked, how did it all happen? Because in the ranks, there are thousands of people who say, okay, I'm in. I'm in, and I'm in again, and I'm in again. And nobody died. We just kept going. It was wonderful. It wasn't like, I know in the Brighton church where we saw so much money coming in, and if there was a rich person there, I never met them. <laughs> I never found a rich person there. But it kept coming. It kept coming. It kept coming. Beloved, we can do this. We can do it by the grace of God. And then he says this in the next chapter. I just want to turn over the chapter. This is New Testament way of inspiring people to give. Not a command, quite plain. Here's an example of what others have done. 
They gave themselves to the Lord, to us. Then he said, I want you to have a rounded ministry. I want to prove the genuineness of your faith. Verse by verse, he's giving kind of arguments. Then over in chapter 9, he slightly changes the key a bit. Chapter 9, I'll read a few verses for you. It says in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 9, Now, I say this, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it's written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Okay, so in this next part, he's beginning to bring a further application. And he's not saying, okay, I'm taking this collection for the poor of Jerusalem. I'm giving you your motivations, so let's all get stuck in. Let's all play our part. Now, he actually gets a little bit more specific, and he begins to distinguish between people. He begins to say things like this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, that's very similar to what Jesus said. Jesus said, give, it'll be given to you. Pressed down, shaken together, overflowing. Jesus had said similar, that as we give, God gives back. A phenomenal principle of the Bible. That's quite plainly there. And so, Paul is saying that's how it works, but then he says this, some of you will do it and some of you won't. Some of you will be a bit sparing, some of you will be generous. And the amazing thing is those who are a little bit sparing will find the response is sparing. And those who are generous will find the response is generous. That's what he plainly is saying in this passage. He's distinguishing between people. It's a bit like Jesus. It says Jesus went to the temple and he sat down opposite where the money was giving. And he spotted somebody giving very generously, as it happens, with wrong motivations. And he offered another woman who was giving sacrificially with extraordinarily good motivations. And he began to distinguish between them. He talks about the fire falling upon it to see what was there. What would God do? How did God view this? Was God happy with what was going on there? And so Jesus distinguishes between people, even here. You won't find that we do that. You won't find in your local church 
as you go and give your offerings. Sometimes we pour forward on these occasions to give our offerings. You won't find the elders are sitting there going, hmm, I see, you know, I'm looking at you, mm, not you, yes, okay. No, we tend to averse our gaze. We tend to think, oh, it's between you and God. Jesus isn't like that. He's looking very closely. He doesn't averse his gaze. He doesn't say, oh, well, of course, that's between you and God. He says, no, what are you doing there? He looks. He, he distinguishes. Jesus distinguishes between. And Paul's doing that here. He says, some will do this, and some will do that. And he begins to point out that difference. So he says, here's some of the things God wants. First of all, it is he sees what we're doing. Secondly, he's got this principle that distinguishes between generosity and tightness. And then this is what he wants. He says, I want you to give, verse 7, what you've decided in your heart. All right? What you've decided in your heart. So giving is a heart issue. It's not something, well, here's the offering. What have I got? I've got a few coins here. No, it's something we decide in the heart because you need to guard your heart. It's out of the heart that things flow. And giving is part of worship. It's a big, big part of worship. It's one of the ways in which we demonstrate our confidence is not in money, our confidence is in God. And we demonstrate, you're my God. You're the one who's looking after me. And so it's a big part of what it is to be a Christian. Giving's a big deal to get through on. When young couples get married, you need to sort that early on. Hey, come on, we want to put God first. I want to encourage that. We're just going to get married. That's one of the things you want to talk through. I remember Wendy and I talking it through from the beginning. We're going to be generous. We're going to make, this is going to happen. Going to, are you happy with this? Yeah, I'm happy with this. Let's make it a principle for our house. In our house, we want to serve the Lord. It's going to be one of the principles for us. We'll work this thing out together. We work it. It's what you purpose, giving is you purpose in your heart. And I'm not just preaching for tonight. I want to preach for our lifestyle as we go forward. As we come to the end of a year and maybe, you know, the next, what's, what are you going to set this year? Can we put it up somewhat this year? Over the years, could put it up, put it up, put it up. Maybe it started with 10%. Maybe 10% was a huge step of faith when you started. Sometimes as time goes on, 10% is not so much a step of faith. It's like, oh, we've done that. Now let's enjoy life. No, maybe, hey, we can push it up. Maybe we can go further. Maybe we can go further. Over the years, I could tell you some wonderful stories of how it's gone up and up and up and up. Let's, let's go a bit further this year. We could do some more this year. It's an adventure. It's an exciting adventure. So we purpose in our hearts. It's not a casual deal. Giving is not a casual deal. It's a big part of what we are to be Christians. And so you purpose in your heart. What should we do? And this is we don't do it reluctantly. Is it before tax or after tax? <laughs> It's not reluctant. God loves a cheerful giver. He wants joy in this place as we give. He wants us to be delighted in this whole privilege. of being. These early believers, the joy they had in their poverty to give. Extraordinary thing. That's what Paul is describing, and that's what's taking place. He wants you to do it not grudgingly, not with regret. Do we have to do this? If you're a Christian, do you have to do it? No, 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 not grudgingly. Not grudgingly. God wants to win our hearts first. Then we get in the excitement of it. And then he begins, begins to develop this principle. It changes the word giving to sowing. He talks about 
sowing sparingly. It doesn't say giving. You think, well, hold on, Paul, you're talking about giving just now. Now you're talking about sowing. What's, what's that got to do with it? Well, the Bible introduces a new principle. It says that somehow giving is like sowing. Now, when you give, you know, before you give, you've got this much, and you, you give that proportion, and you've got less. Simple principle. You give away some, so you haven't got so much anymore. That's what giving is like. You had this, you give that, now you've got less. And Paul introduces a new word. He says, sowing. Now, sowing isn't a matter of just saying goodbye. Sowing is investing in a principle. That's what the Bible says, okay? You are sowing. And some, he says, will sow cautiously, and some will do it generously. And the response will be in proportion. It says in verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness so that you can be generous on every occasion. So he's saying if you, if you become a generous sower, God will keep on giving you back more seed. Now you might say, hey Terry, this sounds like American television evangelists coming across here. Okay, so I've also seen the American television evangelists, and I don't like it at all. And so the danger, beloved, which is what has been for some of our evangelical friends, they see something in the charismatic world they don't like, and so they have resisted the whole thing and lost so much wonderful blessing. And it's for us, sometimes we see people getting hold of this doctrine and distorting it and making it very ugly. It's like, you know, give generously and here's my address. Give generously and you can have a great big, you know, gold watch like I have and a great big this and a great big that. Hey, you can get rich, you can get rich. And Paul isn't saying that, but Paul is saying there's a principle here, you sow and reap. And he said God will increase your sowing, your ability to, to give more, not your ability to accumulate more and become rich. But a, there is a biblical principle. And if we, get, if we get scared at the distortion and walk away from it, we can miss what the Bible literally is telling us, that giving is also sowing. And it also it produces a crop. And that's what the Bible plainly says. John, Charles Hodge, who is... Uh, a reformed, very uh, conservative evangelical scholar of a previous generation. He's written some good commentaries. He wrote commentaries on First and Second Corinthians. He says here, the reference I've just read to you is not to inward spiritual riches, which is what some of our evangelical brothers would say, oh, this isn't about money. The context is plainly about money, plainly is. And yet you'll find some people say, oh, it's not at all about money, it's just about your inward. No, it isn't. It's plain. He's talking about money. And this is what Hodge says. The reference is not to inward spiritual riches, but to the context demands that Paul is dealing with worldly riches. Giving is to the natural eye the way to lessen your store, not increase it. But the Bible says it's the way to increase it. God has given promises that if we will honor him with our giving, he will give to us. It's a biblical principle. Give, Jesus said, and it will be given to you. 
pressed down, shaken together, overflowing. It's a biblical principle. And we can respect it, we can believe it, we can trust it. And Hodge says this, this is a declaration, not a wish. It's a statement of God, that God will honor those who do it. And he says this too, it is right to present to men the divinely ordained consequences of their actions as motivations to control their conduct. If the Bible says these promises, let's believe them. Let's find him faithful. Let's trust him. Let's be involved in saying, Lord, I do believe you for this. I want to be generous. I want to be a generous believer. I want to be one who gives away. I want to invest into this. I want to commit myself into your great purposes. I want that to characterize who I am and how I live. As it says there, describing the, the, the believer, it says, he scatters abroad, he gives to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. That's the description of the believer. We should be those who are scattering liberally. And especially when we can say, hey, look, this is the sort of thing we're giving to. This ministry that's going around the world, reaching out to poor and needy people, nation after nation, raising up churches, reaching out. Hey, what a tremendous thing to invest into. That's what God wants from us. That's what God wants us to do. And he says in the end, they will give thanks to God on your behalf. They will praise him. He will get the praise for what happened in your world. Let me just read a story of a lady in our church. She gave me this a while back now, but it's a beautiful testimony of an ordinary believer. I'll just read it to you. It's so exciting. She says, for some, quite some time, I wanted to visit my friend in Mexico. I found a cheap flight departing at the end of April, but I didn't, I didn't book it immediately. In February, we had our gift day. I prayed about what to give and decided on a figure. Then God challenged me about it, so I, I upped it a bit. I put the check and paperwork into an envelope, sealed it, drove off to the Sunday morning meeting. Terry was preaching on giving, which is naturally the theme for the day. I thought I'd listen quite attentively to the message, agree wholeheartedly with it, and put my gift in the offering. It was a sort of closed envelope, closed mind mentality. You don't really need to listen hard to a message on giving if you've already decided what you're going to give. Anyway, God had other ideas. As Terry spoke, the Holy Spirit crept up on me and suggested that maybe I should give more. By the end of the sermon, I was externally my usual calm and collected self, while inwardly there was war going on. What about Mexico, I protested to God. You know I haven't got any savings. If I give more, there's no way I can go. The band came together for the final song. I glanced at the offering bowls stationed at the front. Everyone stood to sing, go forward with their gifts. I remained seated, wrestling over what to do, crying out to God for direction. Is this you, me, the enemy, I asked. I don't want to be forced into something you're not saying to me. Maybe I'm just getting stressed out. Surely I prayed about my gift. I'm giving what I believe you told me to. What's this sense of disquiet? What's going on? People all around me were singing, streaming forward. Then God spoke. It had to be his voice because I could never have made up what he said or said it in the way he did. Frankly, I was bracing myself for the words, yes, I want you to give this figure. Instead, 
He responded with such tenderness. Yes, he said, I know I approved your gift before. Then almost with a fatherly smile, he added, but wouldn't it be fun to give more? <laughs> fun, I repeated, <laughs> pondering the idea for a few seconds, fingering the nicely sealed envelope in my hands. Fun! I think it would be quite fun to go to Mexico. <laughs> but God's gentle approach and gracious answer had caught me totally off guard. Finally, I opened the envelope, wrote out a check for double my original figure, changed the paperwork, stuffed everything back into the envelope, which I sealed as best I could, got up, put my gift into the offering, probably the last person to do so, as I returned to my seat, joined in with the final song, I felt happy, but I can't deny there were tears in my eyes because this sacrifice was costing me something. Needless to say, from that point on, I gave up the idea of going to Mexico until the following week when I received an unexpected letter from my mother. Daddy and I would like to give you some money for a new kitchen extension, she wrote. We'll give you half the money this month and the rest later. What was the final figure? Was it five times what I'd given? Ten? Twenty? No, none of these. God multiplied my gift 22 times over. So where's that number in Scripture? Written in verses like, give and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. My lap was brimming with provision from God. But the story doesn't end there. For over 20 years as a Christian, I've operated on the receive-to-give principle. Whenever I'm given money, I give at least 10% of it away, and sometimes a little more than that. Now, in this case, I naturally wanted to honor my parents by using their money for the new kitchen extension, which, by the way, was badly needed. But no sooner was the first installment in my bank account than I was thinking, now, what do I do about the tithe? One morning, God gave me the answer. Go to Mexico, he said. Give the pastor's family a holiday by the sea and pay for it. We saw the sights. We sat on the beach, swam in the sea, went on boat trips, had meals in restaurants, drank massive pina coladas, all at the father's expense. <laughs> One day... We were sitting on an inflatable banana boat, being towed along by a speedboat. The children were squealing with joy as we hit the waves, and God spoke to me. Wasn't it fun to give more, he said. At the end of the week, I took all my remaining traveler's checks to the bank, cashed them, bought everyone lunch, purchased a few presents to take home, gave the pastor's family what I'd got left, all that is except for a small sum which I needed for the bus journey to the airport. Mexico is a happy memory now. I'm rejoicing over a beautiful new kitchen extension. Both are signs of God's amazing faithfulness to me. Maybe the greatest highlight is hidden in the day when I passed another test of faith, the day when God took me out of my comfort zone and said, wouldn't it be fun to give more? And I believed him.
Paul's passage here closes in verse 14. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace that God has given to you. The grace God's given to you. Beloved, when God touches your heart, it's his grace to bring us into a reality that frees us. It frees us. It sets us free from fear, anxiety, manipulation. God frees us to trust him and prove him. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your ability to free us, Lord. Thank you the truth shall set you free. Lord, let your truth set us free tonight. We ask you please to release a wondrous offering so that the kingdom goes on in leaps and bounds and many individuals can say, yes, Father, I did what you told me to do. Yes, Father, I responded to your promptings. I carry on walking with you in your wonderful grace. Let it be so, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.